Hey folks, in today's episode, we're going to be continuing in the series that's exploring the contents of my recent publication, Psychology, the Science of the Soul, which is available on my e-store. Uh, you can find a link to that on my website, www.alexsacken.com, S-A-C-H-O-N. And in particular, I've been doing a long series that's going into this, uh, this publication, but in today's episode, we're going to be doing part two of a mini two-part series that investigates chapter three of that publication, which looks at the links between astrology and depth psychology. And so, so in part one, uh, which is a lot, the, the previous episode I posted of this two-part series, we looked at the basic ideas about how depth psychology relates to astrology. And in particular, we focused on the, the links between archetypes of the collective unconscious and the, um, the outer planets and their transits. And so the basic idea is that when certain planets, particularly the four outer planets or the five outer planets of the solar system, when those planets enter into significant alignments with one another, they trigger certain archetypes within the collective unconscious to become activated. And when those archetypes become activated, they impress their influence upon both the subjective, i.e. the mind, and also the objective, i.e. the world of physical form. They impress their influence both on the objective and the subjective. And they do, and when they do so, they trigger us to undergo certain qualities of experience that are associated with their different archetypes. So certain planets have different themes associated with them. And when those ar archetypes associated with the planets become activated, they will those themes will play out in our lives in an objective and subjective way. And when these different planets move into alignments with one another, there's a certain chemistry that happens. So for example, the archetype of Pluto will express itself differently depending on how it is activated when it re releases certain alignments with, let's say, Jupiter or Uranus. Uh, but that, that archetype will express itself differently if, if Pluto will form a relationship with Saturn, let's say. So there's a difference between how Pluto will Im impact us and how that archetype will, will play through depending on which planets it's forming a alignment with at, at certain points in time. Now to, to make things more complex, there's also uh, the consideration of the zodiac sign that the, the respective planets are in, but we're not going to go into that quite yet. Um, that's for future analysis. Because one aspect of that story that I'm still putting together and trying to make sense of is the difference between the sidereal positioning of the planets, uh, excuse me, of the zodiac and the tropical positioning. And, and there's a 23 degree difference approximately between those two positionings. And most people use, at least in the West, use the tropical way of measuring zodiac positioning. But I have good reason to think that the sidereal positioning may be a more significant zodiac positioning to be considering. But there's a significant difference between how, how planets are positioned based on these two different approaches to looking at the zodiac. So because I haven't come to a final conclusion about what, how it's best to use 
either tropical or sidereal in my analysis, I am going to forego for the time being going into any detail about the significance of recent planetary transits in terms of where they're located in the zodiac. So for now, I'm just going to be focusing on the transits uh, and the aspects between the different planets in their transits. And so we're going to be looking at basically the geometric positioning of different planets in relationship to each other. So there are certain positions, certain geometrical alignments between planets that are most significant. And those have to do with conjunction, which is when two planets meet in the sky. So think of like an eclipse um, when they overlap in the same region of the zodiac. That's one. Um, then you have the square, which is a 90 degree angle between two planets. You have opposition, which is a 180 degree uh, positioning between the two in which they are on opposite sides of the zodiac, exact opposite sides. And then you also have trine in which they are forming a, a 60 degree angle between the two. So those are the significant, the most significant relationship uh, geometries between different planets. And those significant positions are ones that are associated with the activation of the archetypes associated with the planets involved. So in 2020, several significant planetary alignments took place. And these involved the outer planets of the solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. And the four outermost planets are ones that we went in depth on in the previous episode because we investigated how they are linked with the death-rebirth process, the archetypes of death-rebirth. And that has to do with research that Stanislav Grof did in conjunction with Richard Tarnas. So in this episode, we are going to delve uh, a little bit into each of those significant planetary aspects. There were three. We're also going to touch a little bit on a fourth one that's happening right now. And we're going to be discussing the planetary, the planets involved with each and the alignment or, and the archetypes that tend to be associated with the chemistry between when those various planets meet. And then we're also going to be doing an in-depth case study on one of those uh, planetary alignments in particular, which is Pluto-Saturn. So to kick things off now, I'm going to read the first little bit of uh, this section I have in this third chapter that's called An Investigation into the Astrology of 2020-2021. And so this is going to be kind of an introduction So I write, for years, students, analysts, and observers of astrology have been looking with trepidation toward the year 2020. Why? Because during this much-anticipated year, several, several highly significant planetary alignments were set to occur. Ones involving the large-scale civilization-shifting alignments of several key outer planets, notably Pluto, Saturn, Jupiter, and Uranus. And then I, in this next section, will be reading a short quote from Jessica Davidson, who's an astrological analyst who I like a lot. Her website is jessicadavidson.co.uk. Anticipating this time period, analyst Jessica Davidson wrote in December 2019, Things have been tense and stressful over the last year, and the pressure isn't going to let up in 2020. 
We're in transition between eras and old structures are breaking down to clear the way for a totally new way of doing things. So things could be chaotic for a while. Don't hold your breath waiting for life to go back to normal, whatever that is. It won't happen anytime soon. This year represents a major turning point in the development of the collective psyche with the start of three new cycles. Saturn-Pluto, Jupiter-Pluto, and Jupiter-Saturn. So what, is it, what does she mean by new cycles? She means that, or she's referring to the fact that in 2020 we had a conjun- three different conjunctions happen that all overlapped with each other. And they happened all in approximately the same position of the sky, which is the, the, the boundary between Capricorn and Aquarius. And a new cycle begins when a conjunction happens. So the planets overlap like an eclipse, like the sun, a solar and lunar eclipse. And so there's a, they overlap in the same position in the sky. And then the, they're both going to be continuously rotating around the Earth. So after the eclipse happens, the faster moving planet, which is the innermost planet, uh, will gradually break away from the outer planet. And the two will be continuing, but the, the uh, continuing in each's respective circu- circumambulation around the sun. But the, uh, the innermost planet will go faster than the outer planet. And so it'll be moving around. And in a, cer- in a certain period of time, those two planets will once again meet up and have another conjunction. And that next conjunction will be in a different part of the sky, a different sign of the zodiac. But the period in between the meeting of those is a cycle. And so throughout that cycle, from the conjunction point to the next conjunction point, there will be certain major uh, alignment points that will take place. And those have to do with square, opposition, and trine. And sextile is another one. But that's basically how the cycle works, is that the the cycle is marked by by two succeeding conjunctions and the in, in between those two conjunction points there will be certain periods of alignment that will also prove significant so uh, in this in this section i go over some of the basics of what i was just talking about and describe the idea of how cycles work and i also discussed this idea of the orb and an orb is this is something we talked a little bit about in the previous episode it has to do with how exact the alignment is between the two planets. And so if we take conjunction, for example, the exact point of conjunction when they're, the two planets are exactly overlapping is, a, is the zero degree point. And then on either side of that, there are degrees in which, in which the two planets are approaching that zero point or breaking away from that zero point. And the idea is that there starts to be a measurable impact between the two planets at a point before the exact ze- the exact zero degree alignment takes place. So usually the effects of a planetary meetup or conjunction will take effect when the, a 10 degree orb, it's called, is reached in which 10 degrees on either side of that zero point. When the planets are still that close, the effect begins to take place. And it's sort of like a bell curve in which the most effect takes place at that zero point, but it does take effect to diminishing degrees on either side of that zero point up to around 10 degrees. 
And this idea of orb is not just applicable to conjunctions, but is also applicable to those other major points in the cycle, such as the square and opposition and trine points. So you can measure the orb for any of those significant points. And I mentioned this in, in, in relation to the fact that the second half of 2021 from summer to uh, through to the new year, I had a square between Pluto and Saturn. And that square was sitting for a long period of time at almost exact alignment, uh, which is around zero at zero degree point. And it was just sitting there in between zero and one degrees for like four months. And it was a very intense effect that was taking place in uh, numerous areas of my life. So that's uh, just a personal anecdote. So I want to now look at the three key planetary conjunctions that took place in 2020. So the one that we're going to be doing a, an in-depth analysis of is Saturn-Pluto. And I'm now just going to do like a little bit of an intro to that. And then we're going to be delving deeper into that and in the uh, majority of this video. But for now, I want to say the keynote for our current zeitgeist was sounded by the conjunction of Pluto-Saturn in the sign of Capricorn, which was exact at that zero degree mark on January 12, 2020. And when I say it's in the sign of Capricorn, that's a reference to the, to the tropical zodiac positioning, not the sidereal. Pluto-Saturn planetary transits move in an approximately 37-year cycle. In the following pages, we will be delving deeper into this alignment as a special case study, but for, for now we can note that these planets are characteristically involved in wars, uh, they're also involved with the empowerment of hawkish political forces and military campaigns, with social conflict and oppression, with collective neuroses, and with, so and with social conflict fueled by shadow projection. And if you'll remember, shadow projection is this pivotal concept in depth psychology that has to do with the repressed or subjugated elements of the psyche aspects of our psyche that come from certain experiences we've had they could be traumatic experiences or they could be elements of our our personality which we want to hide from others for different social reasons social pressures and because we subjugate them we, we don't eliminate them but rather we push them into the unconscious where they can fester and metastasize into what's called a shadow complex and so these things can have a pernicious influence on our psyches and our behavior and in our feeling and thought processes, but we're not aware of necessarily the influence taking place because the elements that are causing this shadow projection has, have been repressed by ourselves into the unconscious realm of our psyche. And the idea of psychotherapy, at least in the Jungian sense, is to begin to to try to find and then bring out these repressed elements so that we can work actively with them. And, and in that way we can dissolve these shadow complexes and we can reestablish a harmonious integration of energy flow within the psyche. So these shadow complexes act as a sort of blockage. And so the idea is that in Saturn-Pluto alignments, the shadow complex that people have becomes activated or it becomes a certain pressure gets put on it and the elements that we've repressed become forced out into 
we become forced to deal with them. And now remember, Pluto is associated with these unconscious uh, elemental energies being thrust forward. And then Saturn has to do with the harsh realities of life. So the combination of those two kind of triggers this shadow complex to be activated. And so the idea is that the, the social conflicts and the wars and the sort of political, can't, hawkish political campaigns, that these things have to do with the activation of these shadow complexes on a collective scale. So many different people with, with many different uh, shadow complexes or those shadow complexes are simultaneously being activated within a society or within the collective at the same time. And, and so that, that, that causes a certain type of chaos and certain type, type of social tension and conflict to take place. So that's Saturn-Pluto, and that kicked off in January 2020, which was right before the official global pandemic lockdown and everything happened, and which really set, kind of got set off in March 2020. So we're going to be going back into Saturn-Pluto and looking at certain previous dates in history in which significant Saturn-Pluto alignments took place, but that's coming up. The second major planetary alignment that happened in 2020 has to do with Jupiter and Pluto. So again, Pluto is the unconscious elements, and then Jupiter represents the archetype of uh, expansion and growth. So we're going to be looking at that. So due to retrograde activity, Jupiter and Pluto met three times in 2020, on April 5th, on June 30th, and on November 13th. This planetary transit moves in an approximately 12.5-year cycle, Business astrologer Georgia Ann Stathis overviews the dominant themes expressed by this transit. Quote, the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction can be fortunate, but can also express as overextension, preceding a fall or correction in markets. With Jupiter's influence, Pluto can suggest extremes in debt, spending, sexual experiences, or anything that is of an addictive or obsessive nature, now, it's interesting that she points out the market concept because at the point, I, at the date I'm writing this, or I'm doing this video, which is in January 2022, a few days ago, the Fed, the Federal Reserve announced the fact that they were going to be raising interest rates throughout 2020, probably at different periods, but starting in March of this year. And so the prediction is that, that that's going to trigger a debt crisis because the uh, the low interest rates sort of encourage the flow of money in markets to go towards speculative activities. But if you raise interest rates, that sort of money that's flowing easily into the speculative economy and, and sort of fueling bu various bubbles to take place is going to be instead flowing into bonds and different different types of securities that are are paying uh, that we're paying zero interest percent interest or near zero and so we'll be paying a higher rate and the idea is that this will get control of inflation because money is going to stop flowing into the speculative aspects such as uh, real estate and this the tech uh, stock market and probably various crypto instruments but the problem is is those big bubbles are going to are going to burst once the money stops flowing into them and this whole idea with derivatives and different 
sort of debt-based trading schemes is that things become highly leveraged. And when the market goes down, this whole derivative as well can pop on top of it, much like we saw with the real estate uh, housing crisis of 07, 08, and how that triggered um, a serious stock market event in which the basically the whole financial system would have gone under if it wasn't for a continuous policy of bailouts being enacted by the central banks of the world, which has gone up to the present date. So it was a, a bubble that net was never allowed to play itself out. And we had instead another over a decade of these bubbles spurred by this interest rate policy. But now we're going to be seeing the Federal Reserve just announced that we're going to be seeing a increase in interest rates. And so it seems likely that that could trigger a major calamity uh, in the financial global financial system. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see if that's the, the financial slash economic dynamo that I've been waiting for. And a lot of people have been waiting for that people think that, that that'll happen. And then this sort of great reset agenda will come in as the sort of disaster capitalism type of plan. So you'll have that you'll have that disaster and then you'll have this new plan sort of in the wings to be the solution to it. So we'll have to see if that's what's going to take place. But it's notable that this Jupiter, she says that in Jupiter Pluto, it tends to those tend to happen preceding a big market correction. And she writes, with Jupiter's influence, Pluto can suggest extremes in debt and spending. And we've definitely seen that with everything that's happened since these global lockdowns and stuff in beginning with March 2020 is we have we've seen an insane increase in the debts and the deficit spending and and the actions and activities of the central banks of the world. So continuing and and and, and by the way these quotes from uh, Georgia Ann Stathis are from her book Pushing Through Time uh, which was published uh, relatively recently. Going back in time, Stathis notes that the US global meltdown in 2008 may have started on the December 11th, 2007 conjunction. This is the conjunction that directly precedes the current one that happened in 2020. So one cycle before then is where we find the onset of the previous financial crisis, which was the one I was referring to earlier, the global meltdown in 2008 associated with the derivatives and with the real estate bubble. She adds, banks, which are traditionally ruled by the archetype of Pluto, the banks received a bailout without any consequences or restrictions to them, perfectly illustrating the downside of too much Jupiter energy without any Saturn consequences or restrictions. She then concludes, there is a high drive to succeed with Jupiter-Pluto aspects. This drive can enlighten or destroy because Jupiter-Pluto uncovers that which has not been confronted. This highly ambitious combination requires elevated levels of consciousness or things go awry quickly. And then I note, currently, it appears that the central banks of the world are working on a great reset of the global economic, political, and financial systems. Time will tell if this ambitious plan will go as planned or if Pluto will somehow catalyze an unexpected disruption or alteration in the scheme. So that is Jupiter-Pluto. Then the third major conjunction, or the third major, major alignment was a conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn. And this is what I have to say about that. Historically, astrologers have always approached the conjunctions between Jupiter and Saturn with high regard. In fact, it has been given the nickname, quote, the Great Conjunction. 
This planetary transit moves in an approximately 20-year cycle. However, these 20-year cycles are embedded within larger cycles of 200 years. These larger cycles are related, and this, this has to do with a tropical positioning of the zodiac, this 200-year alignment. These larger cycles are related to the four elements of alchemy. Each sign of the zodiac is assigned an element. Jupiter-Saturn cycles take place in signs sharing a common element for periods of 200 years. 2020's conjunction marks the end of a 200-year cycle of Earth element meetings and inaugurates a new cycle of 200 years of air element conjunctions. So in this most recent conjunction, which actually took place on the winter solstice, on December 21st, 2020, Jupiter and Saturn met on the cusp of Aquarius, which is an air sign. So there was, before this current one, there was 200 years in which those met in signs that were exclusively of the Earth element. So this meeting of those two planets and Earth elements coincided with the sort of the whole era of the Industrial Revolution, because that, that goes back to the early 1800s. Now, there was one exception. In 1980, there was an air element meeting between the two. And it's interesting to look at some of the events of 1980 as being maybe predictions of where this new cycle of 200 years of air signs will, what that will hold for us. Um, so now quoting again Jessica Davidson, describing this alignment, she writes, Jupiter-Saturn alignments correlate with major turning points in the structure of societies and civilizations. This is true on the small 20-year scale, as well as on the longer 200-year cycle. The Great Conjunction often coincides with a major shift in political and social organization, indicating the rise and fall of empires, the deaths and or rise of kings, queens, and leaders, and new systems of government and control. She continues, Great Conjunctions correlate with changes to belief systems and the ideas that underpin society, as reflected in the element in which the conjunctions occur. For example... The Earth cycle corresponded with a massive consolidation of empire building and mastery of the material world in the Industrial Revolution, like we were just talking about. And then I uh, continue, Stathis's commentary is in agreement with these assessments. Stathis writes, Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions are turning points that change the direction of economies, attitudes, and the general, and the general zeitgeist. She also emphasizes the economic impact of these meetings, writing, quote, This cycle often accompanies a watershed moment or correction in markets, such as the dot-com meltdown during the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction of May 2000. She continues, Jupiter-Saturn can denote the time for a new order or management, offering the potential to reorganize or restructure a tricky situation. The rise of digital currencies... Cryptocurrencies and virtual bank banking is happening at the time of this writing when she wrote the book. A Jupiter-Saturn cycle highlights changes in banking structures, rules, limits, and regulations. Uh, and then Jessica Davidson concludes, The shift into the air cycle corresponds with periods of rapid social change and intellectual development. Add digital technology into the mix, and we've got the potential for exponential change. The question is, what direction that change takes and who directs it? During the Earth cycle, the fuel for growth was physical stuff like land, gold, and oil, and the exploitation of labor. That system is no longer productive thanks to diminishing returns. In the air cycle, the fuel for growth will be information and data, and the basis for empire will center around the control of data. Instead of exploiting labor, the system will exploit data as a resource. 
Only the rich will be able to afford privacy. The rest of us will be digital serfs subsisting on an allowance conditional on compliance. It will then be called freedom. But the real problem here isn't necessarily technology or data, but our beliefs about reality and the ideas that underpin how we organize ourselves and run society. So if you've been following the debate on the Great Reset and the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution and the debate about transhumanism, all these things are coming to a head at this current moment. And there's also much talk that the the sort of solution that's waiting in the wings after the debt tsunami, I guess I would call it, is triggered perhaps by this rising of interest rates in the coming year, that that has to do with the motion into a global central bank digital currency system. And that'll be happening simultaneously across the world because this debt situation is taking has been built up and is taking root and in the sort of state economies of countries all over the world, but also infested the corporate realm. So basically everybody is in this situation of incredible debt and the derivatives market has made the whole thing systemic and made the whole thing extremely fragile. So if, if all of it simultaneously goes down across the world, then the solution will have to be a global solution. And it looks like a central bank digital currency is that proposed solution. And the question is, will that also coincide with social credit system perhaps taking place across the world at the same time as well? And a further question is, whose values will be encoded into that uh, central bank digital currency slash social credit system? And so there's much to think about here. But the idea is that all these major events that if you've been following the news over the past few years, uh, all these sort of trends are culminating and seem to be linked together with these planetary archetypes so that there's a psychological pattern, a long-term one that's underlying these various motions in society. And so this is another way of correlating psychology and sociology and geopolitics with astrology. So very, very interesting. And something that you don't typically see in the realm of debate that's taking place about these topics. All right, now we're going to be going into the uh, detailed case study of Saturn-Pluto. And we're going to be looking at how the planets and archetypes within the unconscious, how they link together. And how they inform events that are happening here on Earth. And so the Pluto-Saturn conjunction we're, we're going to be talking about is in the world horoscope. And so that's going to create a, a pressure within the collective unconscious that's going to come in and interact with each individual on Earth in a unique way, depending on where those planets are positioned uh, within each person's individual horoscope. And another way you can think about it is it's going to impact people differently depending on their own level of psychological integration. So first I'm going to go into... A little bit of detail about each planet in terms of what its archetypal motif is. What does it tend to? What does it tend to express within the unconscious? What kind of influence is it going to have on the psyche? And remember, Pluto and Saturn. We went into a little bit of this of their characteristics in terms of how they relate to the perinatal sequence. 
the Pluto has to do with the unconscious and the the motion of forces from the unconscious into the consciousness. So it has to do with a death rebirth um, process being initiated from within. And Saturn has to do with the harsh realities of life. Well, one of its symbol is a an old god with a Sith uh, that is used to, almost like the Grim Reaper has, used to cut down. And so Saturn is known for cutting down aspects, things that we may be attached to, up to and including our, our own existence, our own life. But it, it cuts down in order that a death may occur, but remember, death is always followed by rebirth. So sometimes it's a necessary cutting down that, that's taking place. But we're going to go into that. So let's begin with Pluto. In Cosmos and Psyche, Richard Tarnas outlines the main themes of the Pluto archetype. He writes, Pluto compels, empowers, and intensifies whatever it touches, at times to overwhelming and catastrophic extremes. Notably, this planet is associated with the release of destructive and regenerative energies relating to the archetype of death and rebirth. Pluto impels, burns, consumes, transfigures, and resurrects. It is associated with ancient myths of descent and transformation. In terms of Jungian psychology, Pluto is associated with the psyche's confrontation with its own shadow. The dark, mysterious, taboo, and often terrifying reality that lurks beneath the surface of the ego and also between the surface of societal conventions and the veneer of civilization. We should thus understand Pluto as a catalyst of shadow compensations, where unresolved elements within the unconscious emerge and act forcefully upon the psyche's ego consciousness. These upwelling shadow eruptions often emerge with tremendous destructive and transformative force. So I, I discussed there this idea of shadow of compensations, which is a motion of... Uh, unconscious forces into the consciousness and in the, on the individual level we can think of this as what I was discussing earlier this idea of repressed aspects of ourselves things that we don't want to to show in our active life we don't want to bring them out into our personality because we're ashamed of them or because society won't accept them and so we repress them um, so it's this idea that there are elements within ourselves that have gone out of sight and are sort of festering and recently i've been playing around with this idea of that on the collective level the corollary of the shadow this idea of an unseen realm of society that is not allowed into the active awareness of of society uh, and this and the sort of public institutions is this idea of the deep state or this idea of actors within the state or you could even say non-state actors as well who conceal their own existence and in so doing act outside of the awareness of public consciousness but they nonetheless just like shadow complexes on the individual level they these elements of society uh these organizations do exist and they do exert an influence and act on the world stage and have effects And so one of the ideas we're going to be exploring is that during Pluto-Saturn archetypes on on the social level, this sort of deep state, these non-transparent actors on the world stage, whether they be financial or military, industrial complex, or 
ones that are even deeper having to do with the secret research into alchemy and uh, UFOs and things like that, that, that these hidden realms of society equate to this, to a type of shadow and that they become activated and they, and they act and have major campaigns during these Pluto Saturn periods. So one of the implications of that is that what we're seeing today in the, on the world stage is an active a campaign of this, of this shadow element of society. And when we look back at the timeline of Pluto-Saturn uh, major alignments in the 20th century, we're going to see indications that perhaps point to the fact that in these past alignments there has also been under the scene of things the activity and motions of these hidden players on, this, on, on the world stage. But before I'm going to that, I want to talk about another aspect of Pluto, which is the initiation, the initiatory aspect. So this is tying into something we talked about in the previous episode, the idea that karma and conflict is has an initiated, initiatic quality to it in terms of we suffer in order to grow. And so we're going to be exploring this idea that Pluto, which is this catalyst of unconscious forces, it, it brings these out and makes us confront them as part of the, the laws and the dynamics involved in our own evolutionary process. So the law of the universe requires that we grow and we go through these painful episodes in which our own... Uh, our own shortcomings, we're confronted with them in order that we may confront them and, and overcome them, ultimately. So here in Manley Hall, he's, he's going to offer in this upcoming quote an esoteric interpretation of Pluto. And he points out that Pluto is named after the Roman god of death, who himself is related to the Egyptian god Serapis. So uh, Manley Hall writes, While to the ignorant multitude Serapis was held up as a symbol of sorrow or death, he was recognized by the initiated priests of antiquity as figurative of resurrection and immortality. Serapis was the god of the philosophic death, continually, continually destroying the old and giving birth to the new. Disintegration breaks up patterns, releasing life from the forms in which it is imprisoned. The universe tears down only to rebuild. Disintegration takes place that reintegration upon a higher level can follow. Thus, Pluto is the initiator, the high priest standing where visible and invisible meet. As the initiator, he tests all candidates who seek to enter and depart from his realm. One of his duties is to make sure that man becomes more mature and responsible before he knows too much. Those who wish to benefit from the benevolent aspects of Pluto must prove themselves to be deserving ones through enlightened and dedicated service of the public good. So now let's move to Saturn. So going back to Richard Tarnas, he equates Saturn with the, quote, reality principle. It confronts us with hard truths that we may be uncomfortable with or try to avoid, but which in the end are inevitable, inescapable, and necessary. In this way, Saturn is also associated with finality and the ending of eras or ideas that have outworn their usefulness. The Saturn archetype often confronts us with the relationship between mortality and material existence. Its astrological symbol references the Sith 
It separates the chaff from the wheat, meaning it cuts off that which is material and earthly so that the necessary growth of that which is immaterial and immortal within us is allowed to progress. We live in a time of great material attachment. Thus, Saturn is often a causer of pain and challenge in our lives. It repeatedly cuts down materially oriented things that we may be attached to or have grown dependent on. One key theme of Saturn is the confrontation with barriers, limits, order, tradition, the status quo, authority, security, and established tradition. On this note, Richard Tarnas associates Saturn with, quote, contraction and constraint, deprivation and negation, division and conflict, discipline and control, rigor and rigidity, repression and oppression, deflation and decline, and depression and sorrow. So you can see how Pluto and Saturn will combine in a very combustible way. But there is a initiatic element to it, and there is a necessary cutting down element to it. So continuing with Saturn, I'm going to move to astrologer uh, Isabel Hickey and talk about some of the spiritual undertones of the Saturn archetype. And this book, this quotes from her book, Astrology, a Cosmic Science which I like a lot. She writes, Saturn's goal is perfection. Through the chastening process of testing, sorrow, delay, disappointment, limitation, and privation, man learns the purpose of life is not pleasure, but to gain experience, patience, humility, wisdom, and compassion. Through disintegration, old, worn-out, useless, crystallized forms are destroyed, so better, more, more beautiful, useful, and adaptable forms may replace them. Through experience, patience, persistence, and self-discipline, we can change the negative Saturn qualities of skepticism, fear, suppression, materialism, and self-preservation into confidence, dependability, reverence, and compassion. In order to channel the positive aspects of Saturn, which is not an easy task, one must learn to mirror Saturn's uncompromising silence. Through retrospection, meditation, concentration, patience, and looking within for guidance, Saturn can inspire us to bear our karma and pass the tests of life, which finally enables us to reach the perfection we must all attain in the process of evolution. So keeping these themes in mind, these two combining, Pluto as a catalyst and Saturn as this reality, harsh reality principle in which undealt with things are being forced to the forefront. Uh, and I think the whole vaccine issue is something that for a long time in fact, you might say the whole Earth uh, cycle of the Saturn and Jupiter conjunction that we talked about, because that whole cycle follows the, the whole history of the vaccine campaign, that the vaccines are being forced to, into the forefront to deal with. Are these legitimate tools of science? Is there something more nefarious at stake? Are they, are they representations of ignorance and scientific materialism? And, and they sort of personify the ignorances that we and the harms that we inflict upon our, ourselves due to our own ignorance of a type that is not so different than the, the sort of crude medical concepts that we thought we had moved beyond, such as the bloodletting, uh, you know, of, of the Middle Ages and or the sort of shock therapy and lobotomies of the early periods of psychotherapy. So this is, it's interesting that there's a type of symbolism involved with the vaccines. You could also look at the symbolism of the masks and say, how does the masks, is there an unconscious attachment that we have to these masks? Are they 
legitimate scientific tools to prevent spread or if they're not, which it seems to be there's much research that indicates that the masks are not and have never been a legitimate tool for preventing the spread of disease, that there's a different explanation behind the worldwide attachment to masks and the mandates of masks and, uh, and, and what it represents for us symbolically and psychologically. And are there unconscious elements that are coloring how we see and use these devices. So let's just look specifically about when Pluto and Saturn combine, when these two archetypes meet each other and activate what it tends to become expressed within the collective unconscious. So again, looking at Richard Tarnas, he writes that Saturn's influence is, quote, one of moving towards, of moving events toward critical and defining junctures with Pluto tending to empower and, and intensify Saturn's tendencies to an often overwhelming degree and on a massive scale. When Pluto and Saturn align, we tend to undergo times of painful evolutionary transformations, ones associated with profoundly weighty events of enduring consequence. I think you can definitely say that that's true today. These events are often dominated by themes of irrevocable termination of an established order of existence, the deployment of massive, highly disciplined, and carefully organized destructive power, mass suffering, disease, death, and fear, and collective intensification of division, antagonism, and hostility. So check, 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 check. We're seeing all of these elements in the world today. And the quote that I'm, this thing I'm citing is something that was written back in 2007, his analysis. So he, he put this analysis together based on a study of past alignments of Pluto and Saturn and distilled these basic archetypal themes. And so, you know, what's happening in, in the world today is a, is a way of scientifically testing those past themes with the idea that the hypothesis would be that these archetypes would be consistent across time and space. And, and we do see a consistency in these themes because uh, you know, the termination of an established order of existence, that seems to be underway. Deployment of massive, highly disciplined, carefully organized destructive power. You know, you can see that in terms of the, the mandates across the world and the lockdowns. This is a type of, of soft power rather than hard power that used to be expressed in terms of, you know, the, the geopolitical aims of the elite would be accomplished through, through war and actual physical fighting. Now through soft power, the de deployment of influence and, and you know, information war and the media and control of the, the bureaucracies and the corporations that you can accomplish the ends that you used to accomplish in war through these, quote, soft power means. So that fits. You see mass suffering, disease, death and fear. We see that on one level with the sickness combined with the because there is a, a, you know, a respiratory issue that has been catalyzed and activated over the past couple of years. The cause of that, as I discussed in my channel, I don't see as being a virus. I don't believe that viruses are a legitimate part of nature. I think they're a human construct. So the cause of illness that are being attributed to, to viruses come from a different source. And my feeling is that it's electromagnetic in nature. It has to do with disturbances in our auric fields. And... The fact that there are protocols in Chinese medicine that work support that idea because Chinese medicine works on the electromagnetic system of the person to restore it to equilibrium. So the fact that Chinese medicine is a highly effective tool 
for use in treatment of COVID is something that for me supports this idea that the true uh, mechanism of action for this illness, this epidemic, is something that is being triggered in the metaphysical aspects of the human being. And so part of the less great lessons learned about this whole period of time is going to be about the attachment to viruses as an aspect of scientific materialism and the need to move beyond scientific materialism to understand the whole holistic view of the person, which includes the physical body, but also the metaphysical bodies or the metaphysical electromagnetic fields that are part of our uh, part of our nature and the interface with our psychology in an important in an, in an important way. But the deployment of of this campaign with the vaccines and stuff, and the fact that they seem to be causing death and illness on a mass scale, would link up with this idea of the deployment of massive, highly disciplined and carefully organized destructive power. And you could also look at the denial of treatment programs and have the whole everything's into vaccines and the fact that vaccines aren't treatment. But if you get sick, all the treatment protocols have been made scarce or they've been sort of the subject of dis disinformation and all the things that uh, we looked at in my prior episode where I went into Dr. McCullough's presentation on Joe Rogan's podcast and also on when I reviewed Tom Cowan's book, Breaking the Spell. I also want to look at the theme that he points out, collective intensification of division, antagonism, and hostility. And the idea that there's like a culture war and, and, and great amount of social conflict and division based around people who support the mandates and are all in on the vaccines as the sort of cure all for this and people who are moving against that and saying that we need to look at more, a more holistic approach to health and look at toxicity and diet and exercise and all these other factors. And so there's this splitting in the psyche, collective psyche between these two camps. So there is very intensely this collective division, antagonism and hostility, this theme and it's just so interesting how acute that is today and how much it, uh, it matches with the themes that Richard Tarnas had picked out in his analysis of past cycles of Pluto-Saturn and history. So there seems to be a link across time of these archetypal themes that become activated during these planetary transit uh, cycles, particularly in the conjunction period, but also in square and opposition, as we will be looking at shortly. Now, I want to look at a timeline that Richard Tarnas has put together for the history of Saturn-Pluto alignments over the past 100 plus years. So let's begin. In 1913 through 1916, there is a conjunction or beginning of a cycle between these two planets. And that coincides with both World War I and with the Federal Reserve Act. And if you've gone into geopolitical history, and particularly the link between finance and geopolitics, there's almost always, or I would say there is always, a link between motions in the monetary system and the players involved with that and war. With the idea that the, that finance is, is usually interlinked with the national security state in some way. If you're interested in, in looking at this, I, I recommend F. William Ingdahl's book, The Gods of Money. And he goes into some of the underlying uh, machinations that took place 
uh, during the First World War. You can also look at my documentary series, The Deep State, and consider what Anthony Sutton talks about, because he talks about how there was a financial group uh, arising from the Anglo-Saxon sphere from England and America who were acting as... Uh, not on the behalf of their nation states, but as an, an autonomous group of people who were seeking a sort of, sort of a globalist agenda um, that is endogenous to themselves, to to their own organizations as transnational financial class, and how they were that this 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 link of, of finance and corporations and the national security state seemed to have been behind the development of both the Soviet Union and the fascist regimes in Europe during this early period of the 20th century. And on that note, the square aspect between Pluto and Saturn that took place in 1921 to 1923 coincides with the rise of fascism and totalitarianism in Europe. So again, there's a link between Pluto and the deep state, in my opinion. But these campaigns of the deep state they seem to be acting on uh i mean they couldn't take place without the participation of society at large but they seem so they seem to be acting on the shadow complexes of various groups to to attain their ends particularly this uh intensification of division antagonism and hostility that's associated with uh pluto and saturn and so the, fa- the rise of fascism and totalitarianism in Europe leveraged these shadow complexes within the collective psyche in order to empower this deep state group, which is itself a- another form of the shadow on the social stage, on the society level. Um, now moving into opposition of this cycle, 1930 to 1933, that's when we see the ramifications of the... The, the great stock market and economic crash that happened over much of Western civilization. So there was a global economic crisis, and then there was also in Germany the rise of Nazism, which, again, there are ties between the Anglo-American elite and the rise of uh, fascism in Europe, including Nazism. Uh, then when we go to the next square that precedes the finishing of this cycle that began in 1913, we see the beginning of World War II, so World War II begins when Pluto-Saturn go into a square alignment in 1939, and that goes through to America joining the war. And we also see during that period the Manhattan Project, which again is this deep state, this idea of a deep state concept. And there was an equivalent thing happening in Germany that has to do very much with this whole story of the secret space program and off-the-books black research technologies into a different model of physics that's related to the the, the Tesla approach. And that story is covered in part in this docuseries I spliced together called Secret Space Program, which you can check out. Uh, So that's 1939 to 1941. Then the next conjunction, 1946 to 1948, is very important on the level of this deep state uh, trend and entity And this has to do with the onset of the Cold War, as well as the CIA Act, which becomes the sort of great symbol of this of of the deep state, the CIA. Um, We can also look at the NSA and uh, you can look at the branching corporate branching of military contractors such as Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Those all together 
you know, come to define this deep state entity. I'm sure there's other branches of it as well that we don't know about. Um, and then there's also the Mideast crisis and the creation of Israel. And that whole story is covered by William Ingdahl and also uh, there's a great book called Carbon Democracy um, by a guy named Mitchell. I can't remember his first name at the moment. But uh, they, t- they talk about, again, this sort of deep state, inter- the role of the deep state in the Middle East crisis, in, in the Middle East uh, politics and in the rise of Orthodox Islam during the, the mid 20th century in association with this agenda to control world oil production. And world oil production would become the basis by which the modern world order would be built. But the modern world order is, of course, centralized highly uh, in the hands of a financial, a global sort of transnational financial and corporate elite. And so that was a major turning point in uh, in that agenda. And there is a, a you know there's a kind of hidden history between the rise of Israel. Um, in the in that Middle East region, and the in the motions of this deep state group, and how all that was born uh, during the underground activities of World War II, so that all happens in the conjunction of 1946 to 1948. Then the next opposition we have 1964 to 1967 we have the start and escalation of the Vietnam War, and again there is a possible deep state connection there with the cornering of the heroin market and the role that Vietnam had in that whole global trade system. Uh, and then if you go to the, the, the following square, 1973 to 1975, uh, you have the U.S. defeat in Vietnam. And then the next conjunction, 1980 to 1984, we have Reagan. We have the Star Wars kind of program. We have the financial neoliberalization so, so we have a, a new um, trend in the financial aspect of the deep state and how they consolidate and control power. Um, 1992 to 1994 square, we have the North American Free Trade Association and, and the beginning of globalization, the outsourcing and breaking down of American industry and sending it all over the world. So that coincides with the square 1992 to 1994. Then the 2000, then the next opposition, 2000 to 2004, we have 9-11. We have the war on terror. We have the Iraq war and the rise of the neocon kind of movement. Um, the next square we have 2008, 2011, we have the financial crisis and the beginning of a nonstop program of, of bailouts. Um, from the central banks to the financial and corporate nexus of the global system. And that all sets the stage for the conjunction that we saw taking place uh, from 2019, 2020, 2021, where we see worldwide lockdowns and this preparation for whatever the Great Reset is going to look like. So there is a clear link in time and space between the archetypes of Pluto and Saturn and events taking place on the world stage geopolitically. This the idea that there's a deep state acting as part of that geopolitical sphere and the idea that all of this is takes place on a backdrop of 
uh, in the collective psyche, these themes of the termination of established orders, deployment of massive, highly disciplined, and carefully organized destructive power, mass suffering, disease, death, and fear, and the collective intensification of division, antagonism, and hostility, and also monetary changes uh, coinciding with all of these historical cycles, these historical Pluto-Saturn motions. So very interesting how these things seem to link across time and space. So this linking between psychology and astrology as a whole new element to geopolitical analysis that is very important. So keeping all that in mind, let's take a closer look at some of the themes associated with Pluto-Saturn and look in particular how they are playing out today. Let's consider the fact that during Pluto-Saturn alignments, there is a pronounced tendency on the part of the collective psyche, and this is a quote actually from Richard Tarnas again from Cosmos and Psyche, written in 2007. Uh, During Pluto-Saturn alignments, there is a pronounced tendency on the part of the collective psyche to spontaneously constellate and project shadow qualities with unusual potency. This characteristically takes such forms as interpreting the world exclusively as a war between good and evil, perceiving and uncompromisingly enforcing simplistic dichotomies, such as vax versus unvax, for example, seeing others as morally or mortally dangerous threats, again, vax, unvax themes uh, would fall into that, uh, that archetype, and identifying particular individuals or states as evil enemies. Again, uh, you have vax versus unvax, and you have a little bit of this Russia antagonism taking place at the at the current moment in January 2022 in terms of the Ukraine situation. So this uh, this need to scapegoat is a theme that we're going to be talking about. So there's an eruption of resentments and enmities that often take place, and there's a pronounced tendency towards scapegoating and feeling victimized by specific identified groups. And really, the that's why I was saying that there's a there's a, a certain symbolism, psychological symbolism involved with the masks and with vaccines that is that, that this shadow complex that we've been talking about, the activation of the shadow complex that it, uh, it sort of moves into it and, and uses these things as, as these symbols for this splitting of the psyche to take place. But the triggering of it is the fact that there's these repressed elements within ourselves that we project onto others and use them as scapegoats. So this idea that it's an epidemic of the unvaccinated, you know, which is not scientifically a justifiable statement, but the fact that people stay attached to this lends to the idea that there is this type of symbolism involved with the vaccine and this feeling of safety and wanting to blame others for the continuance lockdowns and things like that, rather than looking at the state causes of it or the deep state causes that you're creating simplistic dichotomies between uh, these different social groups and having those dichotomies be the source of the psychic splitting and the social antagonism. We're seeing that very much today. So this theme of scapegoating is important. And then related to that, Richard Tarnas also pinpoints that there tends to be a posture of moral absolutism uh, that gets asserted with a conviction that one's own motivations are self-evidently aligned with the forces of good in the world. Furthermore, leaders who express and exacerbate these complexes tend to arise, such as Gates or Fauci, you could say, sometimes catalyzing entire nations into acting out these aroused impulses in often devastating ways. 
so again, this posture of moral absolutism is what we definitely see in this, you know, the mask and the lockdowns and the vaccine issue that are center stage for two years in, in the public consciousness. The symbolism fits exactly, the, the role that these play in society and in human psychology today fits into these archetypes of this Pluto-Saturn theme that we're dealing with. And the idea that during these periods, leaders arise who sort of symbolize this these themes such as, you know, Biden and Gates and Fauci or Trudeau or the various leaders in Australia and Europe who are, you know, embodying this scapegoating concept and this mandates and things like that, that they arise during these critical periods in which these archetypes get uh, activated. And we're going to be looking in a minute at a case study of World War II and we're going to see how Hitler served a similar role as you know you have a leader arise that um that sort of embodies the print the archetypal principles that are being activated and expressed on the world stage and then tarnas continues that these periods on the flip side in the face of all these this the psychic splitting and social conflict and scapegoating that all that can set the stage for uh, for bringing out and catalyzing heroic and courageous responses within the within the oppressed. So the positive co corollary to this social splitting and uh, the tendency for a minority group to become the scapegoat for various things is that uh, within this oppressed group, it tends to catalyze heroic and courageous responses. And we've seen a lot of that. Of people coming out and, and you know doctors and various other public leaders against a wave of you know criticism and threats of oppression and things like that. People speaking out. Dr. McCullough is a good example. Tom Cowan's a good example. But you know people who are speaking out against the the consensus about certain things concerning the, the mandates and the vaccines and things like that. So uh, Tarnas writes during Pluto Saturn alignments. We can also find displays of personal and collective determination, unbending will, courage, and sacrifice. There was aroused a collective sense of stern purposefulness and determination, a galvanizing of the will against overwhelming odds, a grim resolution in the face of extreme danger, and so forth. During Saturn and Pluto alignments, moral discernment and wisdom are born from difficult experience and suffering. There is a confrontation with the moral shadow of human activity, including an acute concern with modern civilization's obsessive commercial industrial exploitation and plundering of the natural world. And you could also say plundering of the human body and of, of health, because that's been, you know, Big Pharma has become come front and center of the opposition group. And a lot of people have become more aware of the of the deprivations of our approach to medicine and the role that Big Pharma has played in that during this modern uh, situation. Uh, he also notes the decimation of indigenous peoples. We're seeing persecution of that in Australia and the Northern Territories, for example. And he also equates the, the Saturn-Pluto alignments with the ending of vast evolutionary epochs and the experience of dark periods of history as crucibles of transformation. And then also in this theme, he writes, quote, In retrospect, it is often possible to see that such periods of crisis and gravity served ultimately to build enduring moral, moral, psychological, and social political foundations for the future. The deprivations, losses, and hard labors of these periods pressed individuals and societies 
out of an old form of life and into a new one, though the new may not be immediately or readily visible. So that's a, a note of optimism and encouragement for, for all of us who are, feel that we're part of this oppressed group and, and have felt the weight of the world kind of move on us, the judgment of others, the force of government you know, mandates and the threat of losing our jobs and livelihoods. And in certain countries like you know Austria and Germany, the threat of being mandated and coerced and actually forced to do something against your will, get vaccinated. So this idea that through this experience, eventually there will be an end to an order that is doing the suppressing, uh, these suppressing activities, and that there will be a rebirth into something new, and that the people who held strong during this time could be the leaders of what's to come. So equating now back to the idea of death and rebirth, to quote Stanislav Grof here, and to try to sum up some of these themes that we've been talking about, together Saturn and Pluto are associated with both the second and third perinatal matrices, and the transition between the sense of no exit, judgment, and eternal damnation associated with the second stage, which is Saturn, to the purgatorial suffering and violent death-rebirth struggle associated with the third stage, which is Pluto, and holotropic states of consciousness occurring during these transits, the phenomenology of choking and suffocation or the immense psychosomatic pressures associated with constriction in the womb and the passage through the birth canal is often evident. So, you know, symbolically, that's what we're going through, a constriction in the womb and a passage through the birth canal in preparation for a new birth into a new order, a new system. And continuing with the, with the chapter, I'm not going to go too much into these, but I go and do case studies on some of the themes that tend to come up during Pluto-Saturn. And I investigate the polarization of the collective psyche uh, and the fact that there is, as Tarnas notes, uh, a catalyzation during Pluto-Saturn for some, for some, you know, ambitious you know, leaders uh, who are also, I would say, psychologically repressed themselves. There, there tends to be catalyzed a drive for power, control, and domination. So we tend to find reactionary, conser- uh, conservative, fundamentalist, orthodox forces empowered with broad social and political uh, support. So we could look at the, the sort of techn- technocracy and the, and the state bureaucracy being empowered for these mandates to, you know, take control over people's bodily autonomy and sovereignty so these this tends to this motion of, of reactionary orthodox forces tends to express itself through social and legal restraints and judgments in order to limit rights and civil responsibilities and I also add on to this and note that a, a pernicious type of groupthink within public consciousness tends to emerge during these periods with collective sense making Become do- becoming dominated by fundamentalist interpretations of events. We find denunciatory moralistic judgments and increased calls for social constraints, censorship, and repression becoming commonplace. And then, uh, again, qu- quoting Tarnas, he notes that during the Saturn-Pluto periods, we see puritanical standards of conduct, severe punitive judgments, and wars against enemies perceived and described as evil. And there's a tendency of authority to move towards hypervigilance and armored boundaries with constant warnings and heightened alerts of catastrophic threats. 
So a fear psychology becomes emphasized and catalyzed within the public, but that's also seems to be leveraged by the political and economic and military elite. Um, and so counterposed to this groupthink uh, within the majority and usually within the governing class tends to be minority or group groups who become the object of persecution and, uh, and scapegoating. And so this minority group undergoes the collective experience of victimization and suffering under the impact of cataclysmic and oppressive forces of history. So there's a feeling, a widespread feeling during these periods. I mean, again, you could look at the uh, groups who are not getting vaccinated and dealing with all kinds of persecution uh, in various countries of the world. For that, Tarnas writes on that theme, again, this is written over a decade before, so he's not specifically referring to today, but he's just referring to themes that we're, we can, we're seeing the archetype of them play out today. He writes that Saturn-Pluto alignments seem to coincide with a widespread sense, both individually and collectively, of being severely constricted or threatened by larger forces in life, by hostile powers, by poverty and lack of resources, and by the legacy and errors of the past, also by punitive judgments and the oppressive power of established authority. He adds, there is a widespread sense that one's life is determined and constrained by large impersonal forces of many kinds, historical, political, military, social, economic, judicial, biological, elemental, instinctual, ones that are too powerful and dominant to be affected by the individual self. So there's this feeling that you're, that you're up against something that, that is, it's like a wave, of, a psychological wave against you that uh, you're just trying to survive. Um, and then uh, I also have a section where I look at the a theme of collective shadow projection and this idea that Pluto-Saturn has to do with this, with this shadow complex. And then I also have a section that looks at the link between shadow projection and masks. And I, and I talk about the, the idea that in psychology, in depth psychology, the mask of the personality is the persona. The, the, it's the mask that we put on to show to others. And the persona is heavily linked with the shadow because what we emphasize to others correlates with an aspect of ourselves that we want to hide from others. And we don't want to, to bring out into active expression. And like I was saying before, it seems as if during these periods there is an activation of that which is repressed within us. And because we're not aware and in tune with those repressed aspects of itself, it can, that can get mobilized into scapegoating and to other types of behaviors which are aggressive and hostile towards others. Because we're reacting to something within them that symbolizes that which we, which we are repressing in ourselves. And so I discussed the uh, issues of masks in that context. And I note that uh, I talk about a little bit about the problematic science behind masks. So there seems to be an attachment to the mask as a psychological symbol. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of misinformation that coincides with the mask mandates to encourage people, but uh, people don't seem to want to take a critical look at the mask wearing. There seems to be a psychological element to it. And so I do have one section where I talk about if the science is so problematic, why are some of the people so aggressive in being attached to masks, and particularly with the mandates? And almost certainly part of this is that so the public can feel like they're participating in a solution. And then I cite uh, Kelly Brogan, 
and one of her uh, writings on the topic where she writes about the, the idea that there, there could be a psyop associated with the mass mandates that involves dehumanization as the mask covers essential facial features, limits freedom of speech, and evokes illness and danger imprints. Also, the perpetuation of fear and vigilance. Masks remind us that we are still in the time of the virus and that we must remain afraid even as we engage in normative behaviors. And then there's also a submission signaling aspect to it or a virtue signaling. Obedience is now demonstrated visibly so that those who are non-compliant are exposed while those complying can virtue signal their goodness. It's interesting that in another quote I have from Richard Tarnas, he writes that, and again in 2007, during Saturn-Pluto alignment periods, frequent references are made to vile beasts, predatory animals, demons, cancers, viruses, vermin, and pestilences, all reflecting Plutonic themes. So again, there's a, there's a symbol of the virus that the collective psyche, the mind, has, has become attached to. This explanation of viruses and this fear of viruses and virus as this, this uh, invisible enemy. So there's a symbolism to, to what's happening with that, as, lo- as well as the mass and the vaccine. I have a section where I talk about the shadow projection and vaccines and link that to this idea, this something I mentioned earlier, but the idea that one of the things that we're being, that, that, that's being brought out and we're being forced to confront with is our own medical system and medical history and the, uh, the relationship between capitalism and industrialization and medicine and, uh, and allopathic medicine and, and the sort of big pharma cartel, which has sort of taken complete control over our, the Western civilization's med- medical system and thinking about health and medicine and how, you know, preventative medicine and uh, natural traditional forms of medicine have been downplayed and uh, even like exterminated so that everything can go into this for-profit model, which uh, is, is something that likes sickness because it's the basis of its business model. So that whole system is being brought out and, and, and collectively we're all engaging with it and being forced to be confront, confronted uh, with it. And part of the idea is that the outcome of this situation will, we will have to face and overcome and move beyond this, this approach to medicine. And that's my hope is that things are so transparently fraudulent with so much of what's happening in the world that a lot of the actors on this stage will be brought to justice in the same, in the same way that a lot of the people were, uh, not all of them, but, but a lot of the people in, in, in previous wars were brought to justice at the end of those cycles, like such as World War One, World War Two. that there'll be some kind of Nuremberg-type trial for people who have acted unethically, and there's a lot of them during this time period who I think would qualify for that. Actually, on that note, I want to just do another quote from Kelly Brogan that I liked uh, from one of her writings on, on this topic on COVID. She writes, So many defend the mainstream narrative because to do so... Or because to do otherwise would require truly cutting the umbilical cord connecting them to mommy medical system and daddy government. It would require stepping into their, their adult authority, which is their own, individual truth and sovereign power. She continues, Belief in germs spreading and causing disease is what allows us as a collective to remain in the child psychology of fighting the bad enemy we seek to one day beat with the help of the parent we always hoped would protect us. 
These beliefs put the believer in a position of helplessness relative to a bigger force that they cannot match but can only mitigate. These beliefs keep us dependent victims, helpless in the face of our problems. And then I have another section where I talk about the uh, relationship between the person and their own health and how there's a, that's a, this idea of shadow projection in the doctor and how we, almost in the same way that, that several hundred years ago during the era of Orthodox religion or Orthodox Christianity, people outsourced their own salvation to the, the priesthood, that today many people outsource their own responsibility for their own health and, and self-betterment to this medical system and to the doctor. So there's a type of psychological relationship with the doctor that is of the nature of the shadow projection that, that we've been discussing. And I have some quotes about Carl, the difference between Carl Jung's approach to medicine and psychotherapy versus the conventional medical model. And I'll, I'll share one quote from that. Jung approached the patient not from the standpoint of pathology, but from an, an anticipation of health. His focus was on symbols and meaning rather than symptoms, discovering what archetypal needs had been frustrated within the patient and that needed to be met. That was his, how he approached it, rather than pathologizing person's symptoms and saying, uh, asking the, the patient to internalize them and thinking, I have this disorder or that disorder and I have to live with it and cope with it and you know, be in a position of subservience to this medical system and the doctors and the sort of elite who control it. Uh, that they're going to take responsibility for me and my my health journey, and 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 that's the exact opposite of Jung's approach. And it's in in a way, it's kind of what Kelly Brogan was getting at. That we, that's one of the things that we have to hopefully get be confronted with, and then and then show our maturity by moving beyond the shortcomings of this old system and into something that's new, a new relationship with health. So in some, Jung treats the whole patient and encourages them to accept full responsibility for their circumstances and to understand that one's illness is an expression of the total life experience. So one's taught to see symptoms as arising from an unbalanced mode of existence. And then treatment becomes about restoring balance within the mind-body complex of the individual. Again, that's, that's the holistic, a traditional approach to, to medicine and treatment and one that we've gotten away from during this capture by industry and politics and the security state of, of medicine. So the last thing I want to get into is a case study, a specific case study that has to do again with Pluto Saturn and one of the times in history when it reared its head in the past, which was World War II. And so a lot of these elements and themes that we've been talking about came to the forefront during the Second World War. And, uh, and I want to read a little bit about Carl Jung's psychoanalysis of the Second World War, and particularly the German psyche, the German state of mind, and how the activation of archetypes within the collective consciousness of Germany set the stage for the rise of fascism and the Nazi war machine during that period. So I begin this section by uh, giving a little bit of intro. I write, The onset of World War II kicked off at the time of Saturn's opposition to Pluto in 1939. But the economic, geopolitical, and psychological precursors of the war go back over two decades to the end of World War I. In a fascinating series of papers, Carl Jung, located in Switzerland, discusses his experience psychoanalyzing German patients during the interwar period. He notes that the symbolic content coming through the unconscious of his patients as indicated in their dreams, clearly indicated that a collective psychological event was beginning to cluster and come into formation. So in this psychological event, 
this compensation of the unconscious into the consciousness of his patients is something that must inevitably express itself within the collective behavior of the masses. So he writes that as early as 19, this is a quote from Jung, as early as 1918, I noticed peculiar disturbances in the unconscious of my German patients, which could not be ascribed to their personal psychology. Such non-personal phenomena always manifest themselves in dreams as mythological motifs or archetypes. The archetypes I had observed expressed primitive, primitivity, violence, and cruelty. When I had seen enough of such cases, I turned my attention to the peculiar state of mind then prevailing in Germany. I could see only signs of depression and a great restlessness. This condition was not by any means purely Teutonic uh, in nature, meaning German, Germanic, as became evident in the following years. The onslaught of primitive forces was more or less universal. The only difference lay in the German mentality itself, which proved to be more susceptible because of the marked proneness of the Germans to mass psychology. And it's funny that the German-Austrian region has become particularly harsh in its mandates. Um, so it seems that perhaps this Teutonic phenomenon he's talking about is still, uh, still active. Moreover, uh, he continues, defeat and social disaster had increased the herd instinct in Germany so that it became more and more probable that Germany would be the first victim among the Western nations a victim of mass, a mass movement brought about by an upheaval of forces lying dormant in the unconscious, ready to break through all moral barriers. So these upwelling forces within the unconscious that he noticed were meant to be a compensation, an action of the unconscious upon the consciousness as a result of the conscious mind not assimilating and expressing elements inherent to its own nature. In other words, the repressed mind will experience a compensation from the unconscious in order to force itself to adapt to that which it is repressing. If such, a if such a compensatory move of the unconscious is not integrated into consciousness within the individual, it leads to a neurosis or even a psychosis. And the same would apply to a collectivity. So here we're coming to the deep depth psychology uh, underpinnings of this mass formation psychosis hypothesis which which we've seen recently in the in the public uh sphere clearly there must be something wrong with the conscious attitude for a compensa compensatory move of this kind to be possible something must be amiss or exaggerated because only a faulty consciousness can call forth a counter move on the part of the unconscious so the type of unconscious activation again uh, has to do with shadow complexes and the fact that society has entered a pattern in which the wrong things are being expressed and elements are being systematically repressed and it's leading to a social order that is psychologically inherently unstable and it sets the stage for a type of volcanic eruption and mass psychotic behavior to take place when these archetypes start to act on this unstable psychological situation and that's what happens during these Pluto-Saturn periods. Uh, the move of unconscious forces upon the collective psyche was possible because the conscious state of the people had become estranged from the natural laws of human existence. Thanks to industrialization, large portions of the population were uprooted and were herded together in large centers. This new form of existence, with its mass psychology and social dependence on the fluctuation of markets and wages, produced an individual who was unstable, insecure, and suggestible. 
And, you know, it's interesting, you know, pre-World War II in Europe, particularly Germany, was a time of economic hardship and suffering. And if we look at today, it was actually preceded by over a decade of austerity and economic malaise and the fact that the bubble, which should have burst and reset the global economy in 2008-2009, was never allowed to do its work. It was propped up from nonstop bailouts. And basically, we had over 10 years of nonstop financial engineering to keep this bubble system afloat. And that all is now coming to a head today. That whole situation created a certain pressure within the, the collective psyche that so many people are undergoing such stress and hardship and, and sort of a fear of losing your job and position uh, during these periods of uh, economic recession. And so all of that can engender a certain, certain psychological attitude, which can then be catalyzed by these archetypes when they come into formation in the way that they have. And so that it all can help explain why, we, why we've seen this, particularly within the bureaucracy, this real mobilization of scapegoating and this, this, this mobilization towards these insane, you know, nonsensical, completely illogical and definitely non-scientific mandates and all the things that the, the various technocrats and bureaucrats of the world have been uh, so enthusiastic about. There's a, there's a way you can psychoanalyze the symbolism of this whole thing. And Jung, really, his approach to psychology is really what you need to get the most, in, most in-depth analysis of, of the psychology of COVID and the, and the lockdowns and everything. Um, so I... I do. Uh, I'm not going to go over all of it, but I have a, you know a pretty a pretty in depth case study here of World War II, citing Jung and his his work, the fight with the shadow, which is all about psychoanalyzing World War II in Germany, and it's very relevant to today because again these same archetypal principles that were active back then are again activated today. So all you know all these decades later, and there's similar themes involved for sure. But but one of the things I do want to point out before I wrap this up is that. One of the things that Jung talks about in his analysis is the link between the individual and the social group. Now, he's very critical of the, of the idea that, that we have, which is that we have these great bureaucratic structures and great state structures, and, and people put all their faith that these great entities, great social constructs are the source of man's greatness and that they themselves because they exist they are the instruments by which we must solve our problems and Jung instead has the opposite view he says that these things actually allow us to outsource our own psychological growth and the fact that we don't take responsibility for ourselves and our own growth and our own role in the world that we play in that we can we can you know we can chalk up our own behavior and not take responsibility for it and just say, you know, I, ha- I have to do this because I'm part of this organization. That's what the, that's what this organization is doing. So, so the sort of like, I'm just doing my job, quote unquote, like that explanation uh, for the the banality of evil, as Hannah Arendt would, would say, is a big, a big problem with the world today. And the fact that we could have a situation like the rainforest being cutting, being cut down and uh, by a financial system that so many people participate in. You know, you could have the giant corporation with tens of thousands of people, you know, working, you know, like, for example, for an oil company, and that corporation could be responsible for huge pollution situations with, you know, oil pipelines leaking or, 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 and stuff like that. And, and yet nobody 
takes responsibility for it because everybody can outsource the responsibility onto this collective organization. That's one of the themes that he, he talks about in World War II, and that's certainly one of the themes that we need to talk about today in terms of looking at how to create a society and that is more psychologically healthy so situations like this don't happen in the future. We have to address the relationship between the individual and the social group. And he writes that every man is, in a certain sense, unconsciously a worse man when he is in society than when acting alone, for he is carried by society and to that extent relieved of his individual responsibility. Society, by automatically stressing all the collective qualities in its individual representatives, puts a premium on mediocrity, on everything that settles down to vegetate in an easy, irresponsible way. Individuality will inevitably be driven to a wall in these great collective social motions. And remember, individuality or individuation is the, is the keynote of his whole system of psychology. That's the purpose, is for each person to become the fulfillment of themselves. And he's saying that these great social instruments that we've created, in a way, block that from happening. So he continues, Look at all the incredible savagery going on in our so-called civilized world. It all comes from human beings and their mental condition. Look at the devilish engines of destruction. They are invented by completely innocuous gentlemen, reasonable and respectable citizens who are everything we could wish. Yet, when the whole thing blows up and an indescribable hell of devastation is let loose, nobody seems to be responsible. That simply happens. But yet it is all man-made. Our rationalistic attitude leads us to believe that we can work wonders with international organizations, legislation, and other well-meant devices. But in reality, only a change in the attitude of the individual can bring about a renewal in the spirit of nations. Everything begins with the individual. Our admiration for great organizations dwindles once we become aware of the other side of the wonder, the tremendous piling up and accentuation of all that is primitive in man and the unavoidable destruction of his individuality. Any large company composed of wholly admirable persons has the morality and intelligence of an unwieldy, stupid, and violent animal. The bigger the organization, the more unavoidable is its immorality and stupidity. But since everybody is blindly convinced that he is nothing more than his own extremely unassuming and insignificant conscious self, which performs its duties decently and earns a moderate living, Nobody is aware that this whole rationalistically organized conglomeration we call a state or a nation is driven on by a seemingly impersonal but terrifying power which nobody and nothing can check. And so when you look at the medical complex and the state bureaucracies today and all the roles they're playing in the mandates and things like that, all this discussion that Jung you know, had 80 years ago or 70 years ago comes right to the forefront and it's very relevant. So the last thing I want to say is that today we are, we have another, in 2022, January, in the year 2022, we have another major activation of, of a planetary transit. Previously, we had, uh, we had Pluto and Saturn and Jupiter and Saturn and Pluto and Jupiter that we looked at. But those were all focused in 2020 and in early 2021. And the effects were played out throughout 2021. But now we have Uranus and Saturn forming a square, which is a harsh, one of the harsh alignments. It went near exact uh, a few weeks ago. And in terms of its hard aspect alignment, that 90 degree alignment, uh, but it's going to 
have one more pass over a near exact alignment in October. So the effects of this will be manifesting all year and won't really begin to move out and we won't really see the, um, the conclusion of this alignment and the effects that it's going to have on the unconscious until probably the end of this year, early 2023. So I'm going to cite Jessica Davidson and her site, jessicadavidson.co.uk again with this commentary that I'm going to do here to wrap things up and to give a preview of what's to come. So putting everything together that we have been talking about all episode, uh, I want to mention uh, some notes about this Saturn Uranus uh, square. And I also want to note that um, now I'm looking at her website that she writes uh, about how in uh, later this year, we're going to see a Jupiter Neptune conjunction in April. And I'll come back and talk more about that. Uh, and we're also going to see Jupiter become sextile to Uranus. And that'll be uh, notable. Also Jupiter sextile Pluto. But the main thing is the Saturn square Uranus. So remember, Saturn and Uranus are two of these outer four planets that we looked at with the death-rebirth cycle and the perinatal sequence. Quoting her, she writes, Alignments between Saturn and Uranus represent periods of radical change and disruption to the status quo. It's a good time to break out of old habits that have become too restrictive and make creative changes to the structures of your life. These periods coincide with a crisis in consciousness that can lead to awakenings, breakthroughs, and or breakdowns. Because remember, Uranus is liberation. But, uh, and, and, and the actual coming through the, the birth canal and being born, reborn. But Saturn represents the opposite of that. It's, the, it's still holding on to the old pattern and con- constricting. And so you see a tension between these almost, almost polar opposites. So... This year, we can perhaps see a lot of tension between the old order, but also a catalyzation between more and more people coming out against the old order and wanting to build a new world. And so setting the stage for this, we're seeing the financial situation perhaps become acute with the rising of the interest rates. We could see a global economic situation play out this year. Finally, the financial system could could have its big collapse that will mandate you know, no more bailouts to keep propping this up, but actually a new system be put in place. Again, digital currency uh, could be one of the solutions and or maybe a social credit system. But that is in the works. But there could also be, a, as she was saying, a crisis in consciousness as people realize what they've been participating in these past two years and how depraved the political and economic class who and particularly the pharmaceutical and medical complex, how fraudulent and really self-serving the policies have been towards that group and that haven't been in the interest of the public public good, the public health. Uh, so continuing, she writes, we've already seen a lot of disruption and unpredictable changes around the world with an emphasis on the tension between security and freedom. This will continue with a rise in civil unrest and uprisings against these events and when what's taking place and actually the moment i'm writing this we're having this big or the moment i'm doing this video we're having this big uh meeting in canada in which all the truckers have got together and they're descending upon ottawa to do a big protest and actually just a week ago we had a uh a big protest in 
DC on the National Mall uh, here in the US. And there's actually been protests, you know, all over the world. Uh, in Europe, people have been really protesting against the, the mandates. They have a lot more of the vaccine passport stuff happening there than they do in the U.S., but that's all been been coming out. So so all this stuff is coming to a head. So there's this tension between breakthrough and re- repression or restriction. Uh, so Saturn's really been dominant, one of the, the dominant archetype that we've seen you know, form relationship with Uranus, and then before that with Jupiter and with Pluto. Um, so these are so it's like the keynote almost of this period is just the constriction of Saturn and necessitating us to deal with these issues from in our society and in ourselves that have gone undealt with. And Pluto has been the catalyst of that. And the result that hopefully will be us having this Uranian breakthrough into a new, a new, a new order and a new state of conscious realization as a result of going through this very, very difficult and trying period for so many during this past couple of years. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this long episode. Uh, and I really hope you got something out of that. I really hope if you're interested, you'll pick up a copy of the zine because I think I do a good job in there of going through all these ideas in a, in a concise way and telling the story about this, the link between the archetypes of the unconscious and current events and the motions of the planets and try to give it a new take on uh, geopolitical analysis that's based on this death rebirth theme. So I have one more chapter. That's a relatively short one that I'm going to go into in the next video. That one's on the idea of one of the things that we're going to be hopefully coming to after we get to this period in time is an overcoming of this era and paradigm of scientific materialism and rediscovering the sacred. Yeah, so the, the title of that chapter is Rediscovering the Sacred. Um, but this, this is some of, the, some of the themes that we've been dealing with in, in the past few videos, particularly in the video I did uh, modern man in search of a myth we talk about the need for a new myth and a new sense of meaning in the scientific age and to to ensoul science and thereby bring religion back into our lives but in a new non-orthodox way and again i think depth psychology is the vehicle by which to accomplish that so we're going to be talking about some of that uh, in the next video and then i have a, a manly hall episode that i'm going to be breaking down a manly hall lecture i should say I'm going to be breaking down and analyzing to go along with this rediscovering the sacred chapter, but we're going to be taking aim at scientific materialism and talking about the need to embrace philosophy, religion, and science as a trinity, um, and and the need to come to a new state of realization about ourselves and our place in the world and about this whole sort of technology, technocracy era that we've been in, how we need to move move beyond that by rediscovering religion in a new way. So that's all coming up. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you got something out of this and uh, God bless.